Hello, welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rizak. This is the show that gives you insights and resources in how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. We certainly live in perilous time for boys. As restrictive as the man box is for men, the pressures that boys feel to conform and measure up is relentless. Boys experience performative pressures from parents and teachers and pressures to conform to the standards of other boys' version of masculinity, which often entails a clear pecking order, bullying and ridicule to enforce that pecking order, and no place for kids that are outsiders or slightly different, or even if they are introverted, which many boys are. And school curriculum is not constructed with boys in mind. If it was, you would see a lot more projects that take the boys outside into the world, and you would see more creative offerings in the curriculum. Has any school ever asked the boys what they want to learn and what's important to them? I doubt it. I'm raising a son now who is 12 years old, and his mother and I are readying ourselves for the teen years that are upon us with all that entails. And I'm certainly no expert on raising a boy. Like most parents, my approach has been trial and error, hard on my sleeve as I do my best to track my son's needs and changes. What is the right amount of support? What is too much? What does he seem ready for? These are the questions that parents constantly have in their minds and hearts, and it all comes with a great deal of anxiety. Am I screwing him up? I might be. I once heard a bit of wisdom about children, and I don't remember its source, but it has stuck with me over the years, that our children don't belong to us. They belong to the world. Our job as parents and caretakers is to do our best to train them for the world. They have their own destiny and their own song to sing. If we can get our own expectations and our own childhood wounds out of the way, and hear our sons and daughters' unique song, we can help them find their best path in the world. Maybe that is the best we can do for them. The whole process takes trust. As parents, I think we need to feel the freedom of not having the stakes so high. Mistakes will be made. Feelings will get hurt. I think the best I can give my son is belief in him. Not necessarily a belief that he will achieve a certain outcome, but belief that he has the resources to follow his heart, to be true to himself. My guest today is an expert on parenting and the needs of boys in particular. Dr. Michael Reichert is a psychologist, the founding director of the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a clinical practitioner specializing in boys and men who has also conducted extensive research globally. Michael is the author of the best-selling book, How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. I hope you enjoy our time with Dr. Michael Reichert. So yeah, Michael, so we've been talking a lot about breaking open the man box. And in your book, you wrote that there's a strange combination of power and powerlessness, privilege and pain in male development, which is beautiful. And then you said too many boys lose their intimate connections and emotional voices early in their lives. So accurate and beautifully said, I have a young son myself, he's 12. And I've led a bunch of men's groups and stuff for about 15 years. So we share this kind of mission around how to bring more understanding to male psychology or men and boys, in your case, and inner work or group development work amongst boys would be as valuable or even more valuable than the work I do with men. But I mean, what I discovered is men are starved for connection because they were ready to open up. They'd had some failure or a touch of depression, or maybe they got a divorce. They want deep friendships. They want to speak the truth amongst other men. But I don't know how that goes with boys or how it would resonate with boys or how you would even construct it. 
And then in your book, I see that you're doing this sort of group work. So what did you find when you did that with boys in your peer counseling groups? Did you discover some of the same things maybe that I discovered, which is this is great. This makes happier, healthier men. And can we do this when they're younger? Nice being with you, Tony. And and yes, I appreciate that we share a very parallel and overlapping commitment. Um, I think that the work with boys is a little more complicated than the work with adult men because they are still subject to the boyhood that we've created and that we manage for them. So whether it's in school or families or athletic teams, there's an enormous pressure on boys to fit themselves into the preordained opportunity structures is how I think of it. And those opportunities are not particularly conducive to boys holding on to themselves, in many ways, just the opposite, fitting in and posturing and performing masculinity are the priorities of boyhood. And, uh, you know, the boy who gets to be himself and really gets to be true to himself publicly is a boy who has the luxury of strong backing. Most boys don't have that kind of strong backing. You know, one of the things I say is that our goal is every boy known and loved. And it's for this reason. We want to strengthen boys' ability to resist that kind of pressure and hold on to themselves. That complicates the situation for boys. I would just add, so I have been doing that program that you referred to uh, earlier in this boys' school. I've been doing it for probably 25 years now. And I've seen a tremendous evolution in the degree to which that program is understood and embraced by the boys. Today, it's regarded by the boys at this thousand boy school as one of the best programs in the school, one of the most popular. It wasn't that way 25 years ago. It felt like we were going uphill all the time, swimming against this tide of performative, you know, masculinity. And, uh, you know, some boys would, would gravitate toward it, but either they had to really have overt needs or they were somehow outliers or marginalized. The boys today in the group, you know, it, it, it really is. We've got, you know, the Division One football and lacrosse yeah. recruits, the wrestlers, the actors, the yeah. singers, and uh, just a wonderful diversity. The program is so popular that the school asked me this year to extend the perspective in two workshops for the entire student body by grade. So we, had, we, had, we, we hit 400 boys in the high school uh, division. And I had the leaders of my peer counseling program basically talk about why they do it and what they get out of it. And uh, the other boys were riveted. You know, I think that what's changed, Tony, is that boys today understand that taking care of their mental health is at least as important, if not more important than their physical health. Yeah. Yeah. I see it in my boy. He, he definitely is interested in any sort of statistics around what's best for his health and stuff. You know, if you tell him something, you found out sugar is really, a lot of sugar is really not good for him. And if you give him data like articles or a documentary and he's able to absorb it, he'll be like, okay, that's no more of that. You know, so he's yeah. very interested in kind of absorbing information that's good for him. So he, he, he's watching out for himself, right? Yeah, and that's, that's, that, that watching out for himself, I, I, I think that's fundamental. Mm-hmm. In the book, I have a chapter on boys' bodies and the, mm-hmm. the, the various messages that boys receive 
that they should use their body as a means to an end, irregardless of their health yeah. or their well-being. So accidents and injuries from unwise risk-taking or overtraining or ignoring pain in sports, those are pretty normative things in boyhood. And uh, what I'm finding, you know, what I think is that that kind of message compromises boys' integrity. If we're not taking care of ourselves, how are we going to take care of anybody else or anything right. else? So I think that, you know, that your son is able to value his body and his well-being, his health, to the extent that he does, or that the boys at the school I'm consulting to are able to really prize their mental well-being. This is a sign of something really shifting in masculine norms. It's to exciting. The, to the good. It's very exciting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, you said something in the book. You said parents of boys often feel urgent. This resonates with me very much so. Their son is behaving a certain way, lackadaisical in school, self-centered at home, insufficiently aggressive on the sports field, anxious or angry or shy, and parents can't take anymore. They try to give advice and become even more frustrated or alarmed when the sons cannot hear them. I have a really good relationship with my 12-year-old, but I always feel like I can never really get him to listen. I'm never quite sure. He always seems to be half listening. <laughs> and so I'm not quite sure what's landing, you know, and my wife and I are doing our best to give him his emotional expression and have him identify what he's feeling, but also feeling a bit of anxiety and some fear around, you know, he's going into teenhood. So this is going to be a new set of challenges that you know well, having raised boys. Any advice on the coming years, like the, the teen years? Because I feel like this is a new set of pressure because so far so good, right? Like elementary school, everything, but now it's like, okay, now the peer pressure is going to start going up several notches out here. It's vaping and trying marijuana and yeah. gaming, pornography. I mean, yes. I could go on. Yes. All of that. Well, well, Tony, let me respond first to the observation you made that your son seems always to be shielding himself from you. Because I see that all the time, and I particularly see it in my clinical practice when parents come in with their sons, and the parent has one concern or another, you know, he's not doing his homework, or he's getting in trouble, or he's fighting all the time, or whatnot, and the parent is frustrated, upset, anxious, because they're projecting down the road where this is going to go. You know, the first thing I want to say is that, that in this particular time in history, we parents of boys are truly anxious. That's in the air. I mentioned in the book that there are studies that, that survey expecting parents. And for the first time in these surveys, they're finding that parents say they prefer a girl to a boy because a boy is too uncertain. Partly that's because we're raising sons in a time when the cultural norms remain pretty much unchanged from prior generations. There's lots of flux going on, but by and large, the basic messages, the man box messages are still being conveyed. And yet the evidence is mounting that those man box norms aren't helping boys adapt to a new world very well. So issues like the Me Too issues of, you know, of, of uh, Title IX violations on campuses or sexual harassment in workplaces or whatnot are just making all of us more and more aware that this isn't really doing the job. We've got we to gotta go back and rethink some assumptions. So the anxiety is warranted, I think. 
but that your son is shielding himself. Um, we often misinterpret that, and we think that's willful disobedience, or you know, we really don't have anything to offer our sons. They're really oriented now to their peer group, and that's how it should be, and we should just let them go off and make their own decisions and so forth. And really, the message I'm trying to convey is you are your son's relational anchor, and the stronger that anchor, the stronger his moral compass, the stronger his ability to resist cultural norms that are going to pull him down, take him in a direction, a hyper-masculine, performative masculinity direction that your son doesn't need to go. There's nothing good there for him. It's not who he is. There's not much value in that. It's really all about impressing a group, uh, you know, in terms of the lowest common denominator, the brotherhood, you know. So I would say to you that if your son is shielding himself, it's because he expects that what you're going to convey to him is not going to be welcome. You're going to be conveying your anxiety or your criticism or your pressure, or in some fashion or other, you're going to try to tell him what to do. And what he's looking for, your son, particularly from his relational anchor, he's looking to be known and loved first and foremost. So in the book, I recommend three strategies. And, and I really feel strongly about these strategies from you know, 30 years of clinical experience. The first one is deep listening. Most the time that parents spend with their sons or teachers spend with their students, we find ourselves wanting to instruct them or correct them or dominate them. We find them irritating or frightening or you know, they, they get under our skin and we react. And what your son needs is to experience you delighting in him, validating him, finding him really interesting, and simply that you have a capacity to take in who he is and embrace it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's, that's job one. And yeah. until we get that done, our sons are going to shield themselves from us because they sense that we don't really have the capacity to take them as they are. They have to protect themselves from our unconscious and react, you know, knee-jerk reactions to them. So, you know, this is a muscle, the muscle of, of directing our attention to our sons that we parents have to work to develop. And I tell parents, start small, start 15 minutes or something, you know, and just decide that for this 15 minutes, I'm not going to correct or instruct or direct my son. I'm simply going to listen to him and try to show him that I really am interested in whatever his mind is about, whatever he wants to share with me, even if he's not even talking, but simply being. Stay yeah. with him and just pay attention and try to expand that. It's really, it's really going to be a case of a moth to light. Our attention is a nourishing food. It's a nutrient that our children need. And if we can offer it to them, they will fly to it. Sooner or later, it will, it will work its magic. So that's number one. And, and number two is similar to that. It's what I call special time. And it's, it's extending that idea of paying attention, but going a little further and carving out a time once a week. Ideally, it would be a time that your son can kind of expect. And it's a time where you go and you do whatever your son wants to do. You don't modify the time to fit your comfort zone. It's not really about your son doing something that he thinks you might be interested in doing with him. 
It's more about him getting to show you what's interesting to him and experiencing you being willing to accompany him. And if, if you can do that, if you can provide that kind of non-directive accompaniment to your son, he will steer that time toward the areas of his life or his interest that are of particular importance to him. So it might, it might be sitting with him while he does Fortnite, for instance, right? It probably will. He might give you a control and ask yeah. you to play along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, I spent many, many hours playing video games, and I absolutely hate playing video games. I'm yeah. terrible at it. I don't yeah, know what too. I'm doing. It just feels like a complete experience of being lost. But my son loved that I tried to come along. Yeah. And he was completely patient with me. It didn't matter to him at all that he didn't know what I was doing. He okay. was just glad for the company. Okay. Good to know. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good luck, by the way. Yeah, good luck. Have fun yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, just what you'll notice, though, is that your son will understand that you are stretching in his direction, yes. that you are indeed uncomfortable, but you're willing to be uncomfortable for his benefit. What a gift to have your dad backing you up that way, you know, expressing essentially the message, you know, that, hey, son, whatever you're doing, I want to I understand what's important to you. I, I want to be with you while you're doing what you love doing, whatever it might be. And so those two strategies, what they have the effect of doing is communicating to your son that there's somebody in his corner, home base, who knows and loves him. That's going to give him what we psychologists believe is that that develops what Freud called the superego, what others call the conscience. It's a moral compass. He will remember you. He'll carry you in his heart. And when it comes time to make decisions about things like pornography or trying substances or whatnot, he'll be more likely to live up to the person he knows that you know him to be. He'll make mistakes. And ideally, you know, he would have access to telling you about those mistakes without fear of punishment or blame. But I think that what we want is for our sons to have some sense that someone is in their hearts with them. They're not by themselves. They are accountable is how I think of it. And then third strategy? Yeah, it takes account of the fact that most boys process their emotions in their behavior, unfortunately, because they, they have too little access to opportunities to express them more directly. So their emotions, their painful emotions, emotions like fear or anger or disappointment, they drive their behavior off course. What we want for our, our sons at those moments is that there's a parent stepping in to parent them. What I mean by that is that actually we're going to set a limit. But the point of setting a limit with a, with a boy isn't the short game, you know, correcting or controlling the behavior. We have to do that sometimes when they're acting out as dangerous or, or really um, untimely. But mostly we're trying to play a long game and help our sons develop their own self-regulation. And the way to do that is the model I call listen, limit, listen, where we first try to notice what's happening that our son's behavior is unreasonable or unlike him. He's being mean to his sister, or he's acting in some self-defeating way, or some unreasonable mood seems to have caused him to withdraw or be pissed off or whatnot. And uh, once we ascertain that it's not just our irritation or upset or anxiety, but it truly is our son being off course, we step in closer to him 
and in a gentle but firm way say, essentially, I'm not going to let you do that. Simply the act of stepping in and setting a limit. Sometimes the limit may have to be physical. We actually get up right next to him, put our hand on his chest and say, no, you can't, you can't withdraw to your room to play another hour of video games or, yeah. you know, whatnot. But the real payoff from setting that limit isn't that we're going to control our son's behavior. It's what follows, which is typically an outpouring of the very emotion that's driving our son's misbehavior. And that purging of that emotional energy allows our son to reset and regulate himself. And the long-range payoff of that is that he comes to develop a better understanding of when he's off course, what he needs to do. That makes sense? It totally makes sense. I, I was going to ask you, I had, a, I had a friend of mine who is the father of a, I guess the boy's probably about 16 or 17. And he took an interesting setting limits, as you said, and I wanted to ask you about it. They caught him smoking marijuana when he was young, maybe 12 or 13, or maybe he was older. I think he was 15. He was just getting his driver's license. They got really alarmed and they were going to get him a car. He had a car that he could drive. They, they basically said, marijuana is not good for your brain development. You're too young to be doing it. I know some of your friends or your peers might be doing it, and we understand that you might want to try it, but as your parents, we feel strongly that trying it is something that you do when you're in college, not young in high school. It's too young. So if you're going to continue to make that choice, the car is not yours to be driving because we just can't have intoxicated boys driving the car. It's too dangerous. So I thought, oh, that sounds, you know, that sounds very reasonable. But then they added a urine test, which I was kind of like, whoa. But he's like, no, we just, we have to know. Him and his mom have to know. The boy corrected course because he really wanted to drive the car. And he understood what they said about his brain development. And they're just like, we're just going to go with the urine test until he goes to college. And then he's free to do what he wants to do. And I asked him about the relationship with his son about that. And he goes, no, he goes, you know, he, there was a little pushback, but he really wants to have the freedom of having the car. So yeah. he's fine. And he's never tested positive and he's doing really good in school. And originally I was like, God, that sounds a little harsh or a little bit micromanaging, but he's getting the results. In other words, the boy's making healthier choices. He's choosing to wait until he's older to try certain substances that he might be curious about. But is that because they really know that's going to work for the boy? Or would you say that is an approach that might work on quite a few boys that are starting to approach that? Yeah, you know, you're, you're raising a question that is both a, a short game question and a long game question. And that's mm -hmm. really that's what I would say. I think that that behavior, that boy at age 15, uh, you know, experimenting with marijuana, that's not an, a one-off behavior. It's part of a pattern of things that happen in a relationship. And so the parent has to evaluate, is my son off course in this singular way? This is the only way in which he's off course, or is he heading off course? Is he more susceptible to peer pressures? And this is just a sign of, of a more general susceptibility, and I need to pull him back. I need to essentially remind him that he's accountable to us and to our standards and our values, and that one of our values is no 15-year-old child of ours is going to endanger himself in a vehicle. Screen time. 
for boy. <laughs> Everybody's talking about it, right? I had Ben Seaman on. He's a he's a psychologist in New York City, and he doesn't have any children, but he was saying, you know, we're in a global addiction to our smartphones, you know. And I'm like, yeah, 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 we yeah. really are. And so, what insights do you have, or what's your take on that? I mean, we're we seem to all be checking our phones a lot, myself included. Yet I'm showing concern for my son's screen time. It's absurd. At the same time, I worry about what kind of messages is he getting when he's on the screens on these video games? Is there something I'm not seeing that he's yeah. up on? Or, you know. Yep. So what would you tell a parent who's like, hey, I'm, I don't know what to do about this. I'm just kind of following the river and the river seems to be more and more screen time. There's much to say and I have a whole chapter in the book devoted to it. But, you know, I would say this in a nutshell. I think that every generation of parents has worried about the impact of one technology or another on their children. The app generation, as Howard Gardner calls it, um, is a relatively new phenomenon. And our generation, you know, the generation, my generation, uh, we're just unfamiliar with this technology. And yet it has absolutely changed the architecture of childhood. Especially for boys, right? Yeah, yeah, boys are the dominant gamers. Yep. Boys are the dominant uh, consumers of pornography. Um, it's all happening on smartphones. So, you know, I, I, I understand the fears, but the way I think of it, it's in this cyberspace dimension of boyhood. We're basically asking our sons to do the same thing we've always asked them, which is to make choices and navigate their lives adhering to safe guidelines. And we can't police them in every nook and cranny of their lives. We actually have to trust them to make those choices and navigate and steer themselves, you know, in a a way that's true to who they are. And our strongest bet is to actually deepen our connection to them so that they are carrying us in their minds. You know, if if we instead put in all kinds of parental controls and we begin to implement strategies to, you know, check their screen use and whatnot, sooner or later, what's going to be conveyed to our son is that we don't trust him and that we uh, uh, don't believe in their capacity to make virtuous choices. And that lack of faith in our sons actually has, it's sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy. So I would say when our sons give us reason to suspect that they're off course, that's the time to step in. And there's, there's so much now that I don't understand, like all the gender fluidity, uh, you know, there was an article the other day in a magazine, they named, you know, I grew up in, in straight, gay and bisexual. Those were the three categories of sexuality. And there was an article, I think it was in Time Out New York. It was one of the New York magazines and it named something like 14 categories of an identity, a sexual identity that was kind of neither male or female, but it was a particular niche. And I hadn't heard of nor understood any of it, you know, so there's just this whole kind of subculture that's confusing to me. I mean, I'm connected to the humanity of it. Like I want people to be themselves. If that's what is speaking to you is to identify over here, that's fine. But I I just was left with like, wow, I really don't know that much about how the erotic mind is, is evolving and moving through humanity and that there's all these different categories that are popping up that I'm really clueless about, frankly. (laughs) 
Yeah, and it seems like it seems like in many ways it's largely a refusal to be categorized, doesn't doesn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. There's some yeah. irony there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that I, you know, I, I I saw that in a California health survey, 2015, 25 percent of the respondents said that they identified as gender nonconforming. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that, that one in four is probably, you know, a fluid percentage is probably growing. I do think there's a resistance, a general resistance in this time of transition to being fitted into a box. I see that as a healthy resistance. It is a confusing time. It's a time when one sociologist calls gender vertigo. We're all trying to figure out what it means, you know, and yeah. what, what's, what's essential to being male and what, what is an identity that we can define for ourselves. Thank you so much for all the work you do with boys. It makes a huge difference. And I just feel a ton of gratitude for you and the work you've done. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. And good luck with your son. Thank you so much. I hope you got some valuable insights from our time with Dr. Reichert. I know I certainly did. I highly recommend his book, How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. It's available at Amazon and all the usual places. The book has very relevant information and stories in it. And Michael is a really, really good writer. Anyone raising a son will benefit from having it on their bookshelf. I immediately took Michael's advice with my son. When I was tucking him in last night, I said I would like to make a weekly time with him, one to two hours where we get to do whatever he wants to do. Play Fortnite, go take pictures someplace, go to the sporting goods store, play golf or catch, whatever he wants. His reaction? He beamed at me and said, really? That sounds awesome. And then he said, I sometimes feel like I don't get enough one-on-one time with you. So I'm so grateful to Dr. Reichert for suggesting this. And this seems like a great approach to our sons, no matter what age they are. Make time with them, let them lead, and like Dr. Reichert says, delight in their presence and imagination. Go have fun with that, all you dads, and have a happy Father's Day, and we'll see you next week. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors, and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac, and you're listening to Basecamp for Men. Camp for Men.